right? And um, be honest with you, I'm kind of hungry and uh, feeling wing stop after church tonight. So I probably won't go a long time. I wish I came hungry all the time, didn't you? I can read your heart, Brayton. And uh, I just discerned that spirit from way back there. It got all the way up here. So I'm kidding about that, uh, but I do not intend to hold you for a long time. First John chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> John wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The Phillips translation said it that it's away. Never, never give your hearts to this world or to anything, to any of the things in it. A man cannot love the Father and love the world at the same time. For the, for the whole world system, based as it is on men's desires, their greedy ambitions, and the glamour of all that they think splendid, is not derived from the Father at all, but from the world itself. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the man who is following God's will is part of the permanent and cannot die. I know sometimes, especially if you're probably a younger person, a younger person in college, a younger married person, what have you, this script text has to feel all that relevant to you, to you because to think of the end of your life or even to the end of this world to most younger people is a long ways off. But I will tell you that no matter how far away you may think the rapture is or how far away you may think your death is, it's not going to be world worth it to miss it over loving the world too much. I want to talk to you for a little while tonight about the love that God hates. The love that God hates. On numerous occasions, our thoughts have been turned to the comfort that God, God is, is love and that God loves everything thing and God loves everybody. There are other times that in the great upheaval and dilemmas of life that someone has reminded us that God loves you and he loves you no matter what. Lord willing, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that on Sunday. In fact, the love of God is a recurring theme. Throughout the New Testament, furthermore, John, who wrote this epistle, writes this numerous times throughout this epistle. This love of God is demonstrated by his actions of grace or unmerited favor. This grace of God is a common grace extended to all men, and once it has been embraced, it becomes a Redemptive grace, not just unmerited favor, but redemptive grace. The process of this love of God is a perfect love. Everybody say perfect love. It's a perfect love that can only come from God. So with an understanding that there is a perfect 
love of God, then one must explore the other end of the spectrum and see that there are also some things that God hates. It stands to reason from the standpoint of Scripture that if there is a perfect love, then there has to be a perfect hate. God does both. He loves perfectly, and He hates perfectly. By the same token, the child of God, the saint of God, must understand that the greater the love for God, the greater greater the hate hate for the things that God hates. I hope that makes sense to everybody here tonight. In Psalm 97.10, the Bible said, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. If you love the Lord, then the Bible instructs that we should hate evil. Psalm 119 said, Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The psalmist went on to say, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. The word, the term vain thoughts could also be translated as vacillations or double-mindedness. That at one time I hate this sin, but another time I like it pretty good. It's not so bad. Psalm 119 goes on to say, that Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. He goes on to say, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law, the psalmist said, do I love. So the Bible instructs us that by just simply us taking on the very nature of God, that we should love what he loves and hate what he hates. If somebody would take the time to carefully notice in all of the instances from Psalm 119, the longest psalm or chapter in the Bible, the things that the psalmist said that he hates is closely linked with his grasping and understanding of the law of God. Psalm 119 is entirely a treatise of appreciation about the law, statutes, and commandments of the Word of God. The more that we understand God's law, the more effective we are to identify and combat the things that God hates. Jesus cleansed the temple in the New Testament. Y'all remember that story? He cleansed the temple in the New Testament because He loved things that are sacred. One should not be surprised when there is a righteous indignation or a righteous anger to rise within them when they see the sacred things of God being violated or even misused. Jesus cleansed the temple because there were some false ways that he hated in his house of prayer. And Proverbs 6 says there is a listening thing God literally hates. We must be very careful in our walk with God to see to it that these things that God hates in Proverbs chapter 6, that we do not embrace them or entertain them for ourselves. In Proverbs 6, verse 16, the Bible says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. That is a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises equal imaginations, 
feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. These seven things God hates. It's not just a mere dislike and he's a little tolerant here than there. It's no, he hates these things. You know, as much as I love the love of God, the much as I respect and appreciate the love of God, when I read what God hates, if he's as powerful in what he hates as he is in what he loves, I think we should pay attention to what he hates. Does everybody understand that? Am I making sense here tonight? I know I'm talking a lot about love and hate and going back and forth, but I think it's pretty clear. Let's go through these things real quick in Proverbs. First of all, he said a proud look. God hates proud look. He hates that. I'm not, I'm not good at imitating a proud look because I don't have one. <laughs> at least I don't think I do. There's a few of here. Uh, brother, uh, no, I'm kidding. I was going to get you to come up here and I'm kidding. <laughs> From the Hebrew root word, this translation could also be rendered lofty eyes. This is a very clearly, uh, this is very clearly a definition of one who looks down with condescension on others. You look down on somebody. It's a lofty look. 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 I'm better, better than, than everyone else. else. It is motivated by pride which is the very fountainhead of sin it is self-ignorance it is unkindness it's a lack of reverence for God and for others when you have a proud look or a lofty look that looks down on other people we need to be careful with our biases with our prejudice etc we're all humans whether we like it or not, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. Everybody say amen. The psalmist said, for thou wilt save the afflicted people, but will bring down high looks. He went on to say, therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. One translation said, pride is worn as a necklace and violence is their clothing. The wise man said in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Isaiah said, the lofty looks of men shall be humble and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So God hates a proud or lofty look. And then the Bible said that God hates a lying tongue, and so do I. I just have a hard time with people that will just look you in the eye and lie. Just, it's bald-faced lie, I think is what we hear. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. I never have understood what a, a, a bald face is or whatever. But uh, anyway, but a lying tongue. God is of a truth. God is truth. And any dishonesty or lying is far from God. Falsehood always implies a wrong heart. A heart that is pure 
has no need to give in to fabrication. Vanity, greed, ambition, and fear are the parents of lies. So God hates a lying tongue or a liar. As a matter of fact, the Bible said that all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. And then God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God condemns murder. God don't give you a lot of latitude when you go out and kill somebody. I understand tonight that this comes from Old Testament basis and foundation. And yes, I believe that murder is sin. It is one of the uh, foundation stones of the law of Moses, the moral part of Moses that carries over into the New Testament, that carries over into the day that we live now. Thou shalt not kill, the Bible said. Whereas we today don't have a propensity, I don't think anybody here does, that just wants to go out and shoot somebody as soon as church is over. If you have those kind of thoughts, would you see me after church? If you don't see me, you'll be seeing Brother Billy. You'd be better to see me. Okay, so we don't want to leave here and go shoot somebody, right? But I'll tell you what we do do is we like to destroy and kill each other with our tongue, with our attitude and our actions. And I don't know which is worse, to kill somebody physically or to destroy somebody spiritually with your mouth. Everybody said amen. The Bible talks about God condemns murder. When you look to the writings of Jude, you find in Jude 11 the mention of the way of Cain. And it is talking about the fact that he killed his brother. The hands that shed innocent blood are those who have walked out of the presence of God and into the council chambers of the devil himself, in my opinion. There is no sympathy in them for God's creation. And the one who inflicts pain is out of proper relationship with God. And I don't teach that just to mean physically, but it can happen spiritually. It can happen verbally. It can happen with an attitude. We have to be careful with our fellow man. And then the next thing that the writer of Hebrew of Proverbs said that God hates is a heart that devises wickedness. This is a heart that is a scheming workshop of wickedness. It fabricates and engineers all sorts of malice. This this was, was the world prior to the flood. The Bible said, talking of Noah's day prior to the flood, Genesis, uh, essentially since the creation of man in Genesis one through Genesis around chapter 6, that the Bible said the every imagination of their thought was continually evil. Our world today has been given to this sort of mindset in so many places of our world, and we all know that. And much of this is motivated by a hunger for money and materialism. The Bible went on to say that God hates feet that run rapidly to evil. This is a focus with an intent. It's premeditation. It's knowing that something is evil, but I am going to rush to it and do it anyway. Suddenly the wanderings of the wicked heart have begun to move in action toward evil and sinful practices. This person who does this not only does mischief, but runs eagerly toward it. It is almost as if they are motivated by a greed 
for this kind of activity. And then the Bible said that God hates a false witness. I find it interesting. The Bible said this in Proverbs because they were hired to testify against Jesus the night he was crucified. Maybe that's why he hates false witnesses. Is this what literally got him physically nailed to a cross? We all know that he was going to go anyway, right? He had planned to do this anyway. But to have someone lie and bear false witness to make that happen is a real stab in the back, a stab in the heart. This is identifying those who are perjurers, whose lies are active in the destruction of reputation and character of a man. God hates this. He hates the sin of the people who are into character assassination and destroying another man's reputation. This man is also a slanderer. He seeks to rob men of their reputation and confidence of those who are around them. And then the Bible said that God hates those who sow discord. The sin of strife, dissent, or creating conflict is a theme throughout the Proverbs that is condemned. It's all over Proverbs. Again, one might also correlate this with the writings of Jude. In Jude 11, Korah, remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram that rose up against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness? Korah is mentioned as one who provoked rebellion among the people against the leadership of Moses. The sin of Korah is to work to destroy the order that God has carefully set up. It is accomplished by tail-bearing and false implication and a hint of mystery by the discreet removal of certain facts that shed greater light on a situation. All of these things are identified in Proverbs, and they have impact of a crescendo. Let me go back just for a moment to one who sows discord. <coughs> Excuse me. We all know, we all know that oftentimes their trouble can arise in any church, in any setting. Anything can happen in a church. Nine times out of ten, most of it starts with somebody sowing discard. If you want to destroy a church, if you want to destroy a ministry, if you want to destroy a, a, destroy a fellow child of God, start sowing discard. You can do that if you want to, but I'm going to tell you right now, God hates that with all of his being. And as much as we embrace the love of God, you'll have to embrace the hate of God when such a thing is done. I hope everybody hears the word of God tonight. There's a few other things that God hates which are worth mentioning beyond the scripture setting in Proverbs. I'll go through those just for a moment. God hates divorce. He does. I believe the only sin that's not forgivable is when you commit abomination against God, against the Holy Ghost. And there's a lot of sins that God forgives. And I believe God God hates all sin, but it's interesting to me that the Bible does list some that puts it God it's put right up there at the top of the list of things that God hates. God hates divorce. Malachi chapter two, verse fourteen, yet you say wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet it is yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant, and did not he make one? Yet he had uh, had he the residue of the spirit, 
and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, Lord the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, or he hates divorcing your spouse. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you deal not treacherously. There's something else that God hates, and that's idolatry. And most of us here tonight consider idolatry being you set up a statue of of stone or wood in front of you, and you bow to it, and you kneel to it, and all that. That's not the only form of idolatry there is. You can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of your kids. You can make an idol out of your marriage. You can make an idol out of your job. Anything that comes between you and God that you honor more than you do God has become an idol. And God hates idolatry. Jeremiah 44 said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You've seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation, and no man dwelleth therein. Because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, and that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they knew not, neither they, uh, yea, nor your fathers. Howbeit I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not, uh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn uh, no incense unto other gods. Wherefore my fury and mine anger is poured forth and was kindled in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and they are wasted and desolate unto this day. It's idolatry. That's loving something else and putting something else ahead of your relationship with God. Something else that God hates. Is this okay tonight? I know y'all know this stuff but I just want to remind you of it. God hates hypocrisy. Let's be real here tonight. I mean, who is genuinely in love with a hypocrite? It's hard to be in love with a hypocrite because you don't know who that person is. I mean, they they wear a half a dozen faces, right? And you don't know who they are. Uh, Amos, the prophet, said in chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your bad feast. Take thou well away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vows, and let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness uh, as a mighty stream. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have and you have borne the tabernacle of your Molech and Chuim, and your images, the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So they pretended to serve God in the wilderness, but secretly they were worshiping idols. They had other forms of worship. It was hypocrisy, and God hates it. Something else God hates is false religion. In Revelation chapter 2, But this thou hast, that thou hast hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He went on to say in verse 15, So hast thou also them that would hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Nicolaitans were the people who believed the adverse verse of the apostolic doctrine, and the Bible said God hates false doctrine. 
So let's get to our Bible study for the next few little minutes that I have and talk to you about the love that God hates. In the passage of 1 John, he introduces us to the uh, fourth test of the proof that one really knows God. A child of God has great assurance in knowing that he knows God if he does not love the world. John explains the position that God takes with regard to worldliness in this take in this text that God hates the world and any aspect of love that one has for the world is opposed to what God has in mind. So if one will carefully notice this passage in 1 John brings about a transition in thought. Up until this point in John's epistle, the focus has been on the power and majesty of God and defining process of what sin is and the characteristics of salvation as it relates to the child of God and how he'll respond to it. I want you to notice this commentary. It's taken from the letters of John by uh, John Stott. He said, do not love the world. And this is what he comments about this statement. Some people have been puzzled as to how this command not to love the world world can be reconciled with a statement of God's love for the world in John 3.16. Stott says there's two possible explanations. The first one is that the world has a different connotation in these verses. Viewed as people, the world must be loved. Viewed as an evil system, organized under the dominion of Satan and not of God, it is not to be loved. The second explanation is that the verb to love, not its object, the world, which has made uh, a different shade of the meaning. In the one, it is the holy love of redemption. In the other, it is a selfish love of participation. The first aims, the first loves aims to save the sinner's person. The second love of the world is to share his sin. So one translation says, do not set your hearts on a godless world. So perhaps there's a subtle subtle change of emphasis in both words. The command is uncompromising. The Christian is to love God in verse 5 of John's epistle and his brother and sister in verse 10, but he's not to love the world. And love is a fit subject for such a commandment. And, and prohibition because it is not an uncontrollable emotion, but the steady devotion of the will. In other words, we can choose what we love and who we love. So the reason why we are enjoined not to love the world is because love for the Father and love for the world are mutually exclusive. They are two completely different things. So if we are engrossed in the outlook and the pursuits of the world which rejects Christ, it is evident that we have no love for the Father. I'm teaching this here tonight, and again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but our world is continually pulling on Christian people. Our world never never stops pulling on church. church. Goers, people who love God, people who want to commit to do what's right, And it can be the most subtle thing, it can be the most innocent thing, but as much as, for example, marijuana is considered a gateway drug to bigger, harder drugs, wine can be considered a gateway beverage to greater uh, drinks of alcohol and so on, the smallest bit of worldliness 
can little by little lead you down a path and pretty soon you find yourself attached to things, believing in things, doing things, going places, reading things, watching things, and pretty soon you're enveloped by this attitude and perspective of worldliness that has completely made your relationship with God convoluted and hardly even recognizable. This is why I'm teaching tonight. Prevention is better than cure. And so it is important for us to understand the things that God hates. And it's important for us to hate those same things. Because the Bible teaches it's impossible for you to love what God hates and love God at the same time. It's a convoluted relationship. It's like trying to pretend I love my spouse, but I hate them at the same time. Something has to give. Somewhere along the line, I just watched two or three married people say, yeah, that's... I'm kidding, I didn't see that. I'm just, just, just teasing. So the Bible teaches in James, friendship with the world, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that no man can serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, and so on. You cannot serve God in mammon. Mammon means the world. So what is the world that John John is speaking about about at this this point point and and wrap this up? I know it's very methodical and probably you're sitting there drowsing. I'm just glad the heater's not on. If it was warm in here, all of you would be sleeping, and I get that. But I want to share this information with you because I want you to understand what the Bible said. And the Bible is still our only roadmap from here to heaven. I don't care what you say. I don't care how you slice it. You're not going to heaven outside the Word of God. You're not. And if we get caught up in the world, you may not feel like it's sin, but it can be worldliness, and God hates it. So let's talk about the world that John is speaking of. The world that John is making reference to is understood by the, by the words in this passage and throughout the entire first epistle of John. It is a world that has characteristics that are greatly opposed to the love for God. Our American culture is pretty much there now. Our American culture is not that friendly to people loving God like it used to be. It's not. I've come to learn even when some of our government officials say in God we trust, you don't know what God they're talking about. Now, I assume it's Jehovah God, Jesus, etc., They could be talking about Buddha, Muhammad. They could be talking about anybody. They could be talking about their own self. Be talking about anything. John talks about being a world that is very transient because John states that this world is fleeting and only those who do the will of God are going to be safe. I'm telling you folks, it's imperative that our heart be right with God. Whether you agree with it or not, whether you agree with all the God stuff or not, it is imperative that your heart be right with God no matter what. This world is one day going to pass away. John also talked about it being a world that has rebelled against God and turned its back on Him, and we've seen that happen. It is a world that thinks only of this present world, which is governed by time. It's even debated now there's only just a handful of people that even believes in hell anymore in our world today. The world is a system of sin, lust, evil, and pride against God. That's the system of our world today. It is sin, lust, evil, and pride. 
It is a world that lies in the lair of Satan. It is a world that is run by false teachers. It is a world ruled by a spirit of Antichrist. It is. Whether we like this or not, it's true. It is a system that denies the deity of Jesus Christ. How many newspapers and magazines have been produced in the past 20 or 30 years that questions that, first of all, Jesus even lived, and if he did, who was he? Was he really God? They just sow in seeds of doubt. Our world is a system that is filled with darkness. I'm telling you folks, and you all know it tonight, but, I mean, America makes some decisions. Our government has made some decisions about things in the past, past few years that in my short lifetime I never thought would happen. There's things that are permitted and acceptable in our, in our good United States today that I never thought and never dreamed we'd live to this point in this country. It's a system that's steadily moving itself away from God and is moving as many people with it as it can. It is a world that is characterized by the thinking of the unconverted. There's an invisible spiritual world that is creating an intense spiritual battle at all times. The battle is literally unceasing as the devil and his demons fight constantly every forward step of progress that a child of God and a church is trying to take. And I feel that every day that I live. I know in trying to build Grace Church and trying to keep Grace Church together that every day is a battle. Every day is a fight because everything in our world is pulling against us. And we all know that's true. But the Bible teaches we shouldn't go along with that. We should hate that and oppose it as much as we possibly can. So John John does not specifically bring up this spiritual warfare that Paul mentions that is always in progress. He does confirm that there are two opposing forces. One belongs to God and the other to a world system that is in opposition to God. The church must not be too concerned with how the world may perceive us. Can't be concerned with that. I hear Christian people beat up on the news all the time. They're idiots. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just completely out of touch because they believe in the Bible, and the Bible is so irrelevant in our system today as our government and many other organizations say. It's disheartening. disheartening. It's disappointing. Uh, it was taken out of our, our schools in the early 60s. You can't pray in school. You can't the Word of God in school. And now we're, now we're living the byproduct of that, right? Uh, church is not promoted. Being moral is not promoted. Being honest is not promoted. This is the world that we live in. So obviously that world is not going to look at the church and church people and say, you people are great. Uh, in every election, the Christian right, as it's called, the Christian fanatics, the, the idiots, the morons, the people that don't know better, whatever label you want to put in that blank, that's how the church is labeled. The world hated Jesus. And it will have little regard for the church or the saints of God. This is a world of wickedness. And it cannot be too friendly to those who are attempting to fight to live a righteous and godly life. So in conclusion tonight, talking about the world that John was speaking of, let's mention briefly the world that Paul spoke of. 
thought process concerning the world, Paul addressed the Corinthians in the following way. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the the life of a child of God is that of a battle. It's a war. The battle does not call for human ingenuity or worldly wisdom or clever methods to overcome the wicked one. Paul used the metaphor of strongholds. It's places that cities back in Bible times, it's places that people, uh, they, they would strategically build and there was somebody in a stronghold all the time keeping, keeping watch and so on. These strongholds, the Bible said, talked about, Paul talked about, are strongholds that the enemy has set up around us. To do everything we can to stop, stop the, the uh, uh, forward movement of the church. And the Bible said through prayer and commitment to God we can pull down those strongholds. But these strongholds can rise up in us if we're not careful. The devil can sow a seed in us. And these strongholds rise up as thoughts, ideas, speculations, reasonings, imaginations, philosophies, false doctrines that will barricade themselves against the whole purpose of God. All of these things come from the world that John is having reference to in his epistle. This is why God is so adamant that a child of God not be in love with the world. To have such a false, idolatrous love is literally a trait that will decrease a person's sense of spiritual immunity and will lead to spiritual apostasy. This is why I talked about several weeks ago in a, a little short Wednesday night series on spiritual development. It's why it's important as Christian people. We have to keep a focus. We have to keep a God focus. We have to keep a spiritual focus. And not, and not the world's world sweet, 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 Let me tell you something. something. You don't have to be a murderer to be lost. And I believe there's a lot of people that attend church every Sunday that may not be as right with God as they think they are. And I'm not here to be judgmental. But it is imperative that we use as a guide or a measuring stick, the Word of God in that alone. It's not people's ideas. It's not people's opinions. It's not even our ideas and opinions. It's what the Bible said, and we have to obey that if we are going to be right with God. I'm out of time tonight. I'm going to stop right here. But we have to understand that our relationship with God must be based. Our relationship with God must be based on what He loves, And we love what he loves, and we should also hate what he hates. I don't want to be at enmity with God. I don't want to get on God's bad side, right? I want to do everything I can to please God. Stand with me tonight, and let's close with a moment of prayer and uh, ask God to keep us close to him, ask God to keep us uh, by his side. Brother Jason was talking uh, tonight and mentioned some, uh, some things about Moses and our intimacy with God or whatever but God told Moses when God Moses told God I want to see you God told Moses there's a place by me not going to let you see my face you couldn't see my face and live but there's a place by me that's close that's intimate they'll keep you secure they'll keep peace in your life they'll keep joy in your life they'll keep fulfillment in your life you find that place then Moses you'll be okay and you finish out the rest of the journey and as we know Moses did and uh, I want to find that place by him, and I want to stay there, and I want to stay under the canopy and the umbrella of the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, and not let the world assist me. Thank the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. 
because we're thankful again for this amazing opportunity to gather with uh, your people, together with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thankful, God, for our church. We're thankful for Grace Church. We're thankful for the people who attended. But it wouldn't be worth anything if your presence did not fill this place. If your presence was not in our life, we'd be a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And I pray, God, tonight that you'd wrap your arms around this church again to help us feel the love and warmth of your embrace, to understand that loving you is the most important thing we could do. Loving you is our greatest priority. God, continue to develop us, teach us, and show us your way. Help us to stay close to you and to find that place by your side to walk hand in hand with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Thank the Lord. Walk around and fellowship with somebody. Smile and laugh a little bit. Have a good time. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday morning.